So how do you picture Jesus having his quiet times? You know, that's the, kind of the proverbial evangelical description of when we spend time with God. I don't know who came up with the phrase quiet time. If they would have trademarked it, they'd be really rich. How do you picture Jesus having his quiet times, those times when he got alone to pray? Do you think of these moments as being times of peace and tranquility? And do you picture Jesus kind of moseying through his 33 years, kind of milling around, kind of, you know, find something to do until his crucifixion? Do you picture Jesus as being on autopilot, kind of very easily resisting temptation? How do you picture Jesus as the God-man? Was he just chill all the time? Well, turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 5 today. The, the preacher of Hebrews, that's what the book of Hebrews is, it's a sermon. The preacher of Hebrews wants to destroy your pictures of Jesus and cause you to see just how Jesus lived as the God-man. He wants you to know that Jesus poured his heart out to God so he could pour his blood out for you. Jesus poured his heart out to God, out to his heavenly Father during his incarnation, but he did so with loud cries so that he could pour his life, pour his blood out for us on the cross. So there's this connection with how Jesus prayed during his quiet times and then what happened at his death. There's a connection between what Jesus prayed about and how Jesus prayed during his life that corresponds with his death on the cross. In other words, his quiet times were not insignificant, and they weren't that quiet. That means that when you picture Jesus praying to God the Father during his incarnation, please don't picture him as having a quiet, quiet time. Please don't picture Jesus sitting in his favorite chair Bible in his lap, coffee in his hand, ready to post a picture of his Bible and coffee mug to Instagram, and then having a nice evangelical quiet time. Jesus did not have quiet, quiet times. Don't picture Jesus that way. Instead, picture him crying out with loud cries and with tears. Picture him vigorously resisting temptation. Picture him fighting the good fight of faith. Picture him earnestly seeking God. Picture him suffering and crying out with tears and even screaming while he prayed during his quiet time. Maybe they asked Jesus, how was your screaming time today, Lord? Well, that's Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5. Turn there if you would. Let's begin at verse 7 and hear the word of the Lord. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. What the preacher of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus' prayer life was not static. It, It was intensely passionate. His prayers were not simply hushed little phrases like, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. They weren't prayers like, Lord, give me traveling mercies, or bless so-and-so. No, Jesus prayed with loud cries, screams, and with tears running down his cheeks. And so how and what Jesus prayed during his life directly relates to his death. 
So Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, but they weren't just normal prayers. His prayers were loud, strong cries. They were powerful cries from the gut. And if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. When you just scream out from your soul, God, you got to help me. The Greek word that the preacher of Hebrews uses here for cries, it even sounds like it should be the Greek word for cries. It's the word krage. Jesus krageed when he prayed. Uh, theologians say it denotes a loud noise, not necessarily articulate or even human. The word krage is based on the, the croaking of ravens, and it means to croak or cry with a loud, raucous voice. In fact, krage is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in a variety of ways. It's used in Job 6.5 of a donkey. Does the wild donkey bray or krage when he has grass? It's used of childbirth in Isaiah 26, 17. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries or crogays out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. And then it's used of the war cry in Joshua 6, 16 when Jericho fell. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout. He said to them, crogay, for the Lord has given you the city. So the way Jesus often prayed was in a way that would probably not be welcome uh, in most public places, especially in church. He prayed loudly like a donkey. He prayed like a woman screaming in labor. He prayed like an army that lets out a war cry, like when Israel shouted and the city of Jericho fell. So you could translate Hebrews 5-7 this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries like a donkey. Like a pregnant woman who is in the throes of labor and about to push her baby out. Like an army shouting a war cry of victory. I don't know how you picture Jesus praying, but the preacher of Hebrews wants you to picture Jesus praying this way. Crying out to God when he prayed. Screaming, yelling, praying with tears. Now, this isn't how we typically picture Jesus is it? I would love to see a children's Bible with like sweat coming down his face, tears running down his cheeks, and he's just like, Lord, please help me. It's not how we typically picture Jesus praying, is it? There's that famous painting where he's in the garden and the light's falling on him, and he's kind of like, hello, Lord, right? He's just very calm. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he just seems so calm. Well, you know he wasn't that way in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's how we typically picture him, very relaxed, very chill, we typically picture him with feathered hair, well-manicured fingernails, standing on a lush green hillside in Israel with you know, freshly pressed clothes on, not a hair out of place, exuding tranquility, all the while wearing a permanent 24-7 grin on his face. But is that the Jesus of the Bible? Our tendency is to picture the spiritual life of Jesus as being static. That's the evangelical tendency, is to picture Jesus as kind of being in this fixed spiritual state. Always happy, always smiling, because for Jesus, smiling's his favorite too. Always peaceful. We think that he never grew spiritually, never grew emotionally, never grew mentally. We think that because Jesus is a God-man, then he must have coasted through life with the greatest of ease. Almost as if Jesus' greatest struggle would have been just the fact that he had to wait 33 long years just to accomplish his father's mission. Like, waiting 33 years to go to the cross was the hardest part of being a human. That's what we may think. 
that there was no struggle. Now, it's true that Jesus never sinned, and he always delighted in and always did the will of his heavenly Father. That's true, but that doesn't mean that the spiritual life of Jesus was static. It doesn't mean that Jesus never grew spiritually. In fact, quite the opposite is true. It doesn't mean that life was easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for Jesus. Jesus actually lived the most dynamic of all spiritual lives precisely because he always delighted to do his Father's will. Jesus' spiritual life as a human being was one of radical growth. We saw it last week. He increased in wisdom. He increased in knowledge and understanding. He grew physically. His spiritual life was dynamic and not static. And it was far from boring and far from easy. In fact, Jesus had the loudest quiet times. He kept a box of tissues next to his prayer list. He cried a river when he prayed. Jesus would often leave his prayer closet with bloodshot eyes and a red nose like Rudolph. That's what his prayer life looked like. Kleenex, tears, and a red nose that if you ever saw it, you would even say it glowed because it was raw and overblown and overused. So picture Jesus this way, red nose, loud cries, tears, and lots and lots and lots of crumpled up Kleenex around him. Understand this, just because Jesus was God did not mean that life was easy for him. He actually had to cry out for help. He had to fight. Jesus did not believe in let go and let God His spiritual life was one of warfare. He fought hard. He cried out to God. He did not just obey God automatically in his human nature. He had to get alone with his Father, cry loudly with tears, and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable him to resist sin, to resist temptation, to fulfill his Father's plan. So picture Jesus crying loudly, perhaps even screaming sometimes in his prayers to his Father in heaven. Remember, in the incarnation, Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, those two natures united together in one person. But he is a man. He is a human being. And as a man, as a human being, he had needs. He needed to eat. He needed clothes. He needed to go to the restroom. He needed sleep. But more than all of those physical things, Jesus needed his Father. He needed the Holy Spirit. He needed to get alone with God and pray. He needed to pray more than he needed to sleep. He needed the Holy Spirit. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit to empower him for his mission. And prayer was one of the ways that Jesus received the strength that he needed. So it's true, Jesus needed time with God just as much as we do. Think about that. If Jesus in his human nature needed time with God, how much more do we? Because we have a sin nature. Jesus didn't. And if he needed God, man, how much more do we? Let that sink in. Jesus needed time with his Father just as much as we do. He needed time with God as the eternal Son of God. And he never used his God powers to override his humanity. So please don't think that way about Jesus. Jesus never used his power as God to get a leg up on his humanity. He was a human being and he was God in the incarnation. Those two natures united together in one person. But he's still a human being. 
But what did he scream in prayer when he prayed? Maybe it was something like this. Oh, Father, help me. Empower me by the Spirit. I need you. My body is weak. I'm tired. My sufferings are great. The temptations are real. Satan is real. He won't give me any rest. He's always there trying to get me to disobey. Oh, my Father, help. Help, help. I cannot do this without you. I want to honor you and accomplish the mission you gave me. I cannot do it without you. Empower me by the Spirit. Bring Scripture back into my mind. I need you. Ministry is draining me. Help me not to quit. Let this suffering prepare me. Let this great suffering ready me so that I will be ready to go to the cross one day. Jesus probably prayed something like that. So Jesus did not have quiet, quiet times all the time. There were times when he cried out to his father with loud cries and tears. As verse 7 says, to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Only one person could save Jesus from death. God the Father. And that's why Jesus cried out to him. That's why he cried out with loud cries and tears. Because he wanted to be saved from death. But what does it mean that Jesus wanted to be saved from death? I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, I thought Jesus came to die for sinners, so why would he want to be saved from dying? That's the whole point of you coming. Well, it's true. The text does say that Jesus wanted to be saved from death, and God the Father did save him from death, but what does that mean? To answer that, we must understand this. First, that Jesus didn't fear death. When the preacher says that he cried out to God that he would be saved from death, he's not saying that Jesus was afraid of dying. Jesus was not afraid of dying. He knew that's why he left heaven and came to the earth in the incarnation. His death was the eternal plan of God. So Jesus was not afraid of death. He knew he would conquer death and defeat death. What Jesus feared was disobeying his father. That's the death that he wanted to be saved from. In his human nature as man, Jesus feared disobeying his father. That would be death to him because it would derail the whole mission because he came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam could not do and that is to perfectly obey God's law for sinners like us. To to disobey would be death to Jesus. And it was through all of this suffering that he experienced that Jesus learned to obey his father. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, first understand, this is not referring to Jesus' divine nature as God. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience... He is talking about the incarnation of Jesus, his humanity. That's why he says, in the days of his flesh. In his human nature, as a man, Jesus learned obedience while living on the earth. And Jesus learned to obey his Father in the context of suffering and agony, hardship, persecution. And then not just that, Jesus learned that as he obeyed his Father in the context of suffering... 
agony, hardship, persecution. He knew more suffering, agony, hardship, and persecution is going to come. So as Jesus grew, he knew that as he obeyed his father, then more suffering would come into his life. And as he obeyed God in that suffering, then even more suffering would come into his life. And so there was this progression. So in what sense then did Jesus learn to obey? I think it means that as Jesus obeyed the lighter demands of his father in the context of lighter sufferings, it was preparing him to obey greater demands in the context of greater sufferings. In other words, as Jesus obeyed his father in lighter affliction, lighter sorrows and troubles and trials, like dealing with sinful siblings as he grew up, or dealing with the ignorance of the disciples, dealing with... uh, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, all these little trials that he went through, in that he was growing and being prepared in his human nature to obey God in these greater demands, in these greater afflictions, ultimately suffering on the cross. So God the Father was preparing Jesus for his final act of obedience, death on the cross, by taking him through less difficult situations in order to get him ready to die on the cross. It was as Jesus obeyed throughout his life that he was being prepared and readied for that final act of obedience, whereby he would go to the cross to bear the sins of his people, whereby he would go to the cross and bear your sins. Let's make it personal. He endured everything he endured so that he could go to the cross for your sins, for what you did yesterday. So Jesus had to grow and be readied for the cross. It, it wasn't a walk in the park for him. He had to cry out for help in his human nature and trust his Father to supply what he needed. As the God-man, all his suffering and loud, quiet times were preparing him to accomplish his Father's mission. So Jesus poured his heart out to God so he could pour his blood out for you. He poured his heart out to God so that he would be strengthened and ready on that final day to pour his blood out for you. As Tim Keller says, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave his whole life. He gave his whole life from birth to crucifixion, obeying the law of God on our our behalf. And that led him to give all his blood to cleanse us from our sins. This would be a great time in the sermon to remind you that if you are trusting in Christ, you are clean. I knew you kind of have that nagging sense of you just feel dirty. Like you just can't seem to shake it. That's a feeling. That is not reality. If you are in Christ, you are clean. You've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. You are pure in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. It's not subjective. There may be times where you subjectively feel, and I hope right now in this moment the Holy Spirit impresses your heart and you subjectively feel, I am clean, I am pure. There's no condemnation. There are times you feel it, and I hope you feel it right now. But this is objective truth, objective reality that is outside of you that carries the day. This weighty gospel truth, this objective truth that you are clean and washed and pure and forgiven of your sins is 
reality. And it must speak to your heart so that you get those feelings. This feeling of feeling dirty and unclean, just kind of this nagging, this low hum sense of like, I'm just dirty, I'm awful, is not reality. Reality is that you are in Christ and you are forgiven and you are clean because he shed his blood to wash you and to make you white as snow in God's eyes. He gave his whole life to obeying the law on our behalf, to cleanse us from our sin. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Because if Jesus is the sinless son of God, if he is 100% God, if he is perfect, then what does it mean that he was made perfect? How was he made perfect? Well, if you rewind a little bit back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, we're told the same thing, Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, uh, or fitting that he, God, for whom uh, and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So it's fitting that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you first that it does not mean, does not mean that Jesus was not born perfect. It does not mean that Jesus was not perfect, and then somehow he became perfect through his sufferings. It does not mean that Jesus was sinful and then somehow he eventually became perfect and not sinful. It doesn't mean any of those things because that's blasphemy. Jesus is the sinless son of God. He was born perfect, without a sin nature, born without sin. So what does it mean that Jesus was perfected through his sufferings, made perfect through his sufferings? Well, to understand what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here, we need to look at the Greek word that's used here in Hebrews 2.10 and in Hebrews 5.9. It's the word teleao. It's translated here as perfect. It refers to bringing something to completion or bringing something to the planned end. It means to complete or to mature. It's part of the same word family that Jesus used uh, when he cried out on the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. Tetelestai. Teleo, the related. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He meant, it meant that he had completed, he had finished everything that God the Father had sent him to do. And so the idea here in Hebrews 2.10 means to complete or to finish something that Jesus was made complete through suffering. He was not moving to becoming perfect because he was perfect. And that's the hope of the gospel, right? We have no hope if Jesus wasn't sinless. We have no hope if Jesus wasn't perfect. So when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect, he means that Jesus was moving toward the planned end of going to the cross, moving toward completing his mission as the sinless God-man. He means that Jesus grew spiritually and became spiritually mature so that he would be ready to go to the cross. Listen, Jesus needed to mature He needed to be made complete, made ready to lay his life down on the cross. And this maturity, this completion, this perfection came about as he learned obedience in the fires of suffering. That's why Hebrews 5.8 leads right into Hebrews 5.9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect 
So Jesus was made perfect, meaning he grew spiritually and became spiritually mature to the point that he would be ready to endure the cross. He had to grow in his faith. We saw that last week in Luke 2. He had to reach a place in his faith where he would be ready to go to the cross. In his human nature, he had to reach a place where he would be ready to go to the cross. He was not moving toward perfection in his life or sinlessness because he was already perfect and without sin. But he was moving toward being readied to go to the cross. In other words, the planned end of Jesus' life was the cross and he had to endure endless suffering throughout his life in order to get there. And then the cross would complete the work that he came to do. And all his suffering in his life was preparing him for that moment. So all of his life was moving toward that specific moment when he would finish what God sent him to do, which was to lay his life down for sinners like us. And this is why Jesus had to go through so much suffering during the course of his life. Because going to the cross was not a walk in the park. It would take Jesus his entire life to prepare to go to the cross. All of his life was preparing him for that moment. So that means that 12-year-old Jesus in the temple that we looked at last week in Luke 2, that Jesus was not ready to go to the cross. I don't think 12-year-old Jesus was mentally ready, emotionally ready, spiritually ready as a human being in his human nature. I don't think he was ready to go to the cross. Now, 12-year-old Jesus was ready at any, any moment to eat an entire pizza by himself, and I'm sure he did, but I don't think that 12-year-old Jesus was ready to go to the cross. He needed to endure many, many more years of suffering and testing before he was ready. And the same, I think, can be said of 30-year-old Jesus. I don't think 30-year-old Jesus was ready. He had three more years of suffering and testing to go through to be ready. I think that's why Jesus was born as a baby. I guess he could have come and just shown up as a 30-year-old man. But he wouldn't have all those years of preparation. So Jesus spent his entire life learning and being ready for that hour. There came a point in time when he was, was ready. As Romans 5, 6 says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There came a point in time in his life when he was ready to go to the cross. And even then, what? It came with great struggle. As his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane proves, this maturity, this completion, this perfection came about as he learned obedience in the fires of suffering. Everything was moving him toward that final test. But what was it like hours before? How did the Gospels describe his greatest test? What did it look like for Jesus to resist temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane? Luke twenty-two thirty-nine through 44. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is at night. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove, this is how I picture him saying, remove this cup from me. Remove it, Lord. If you're able, if you're willing, is there another way? Remove it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Luke says, 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Think about this. Jesus had to have an angel from heaven come and strengthen him in that moment. In his human nature, he was just, he was wiped out. He was exhausted. He had to have an angel come. And then he sweat great drops of blood. So this, this was not a walk in the park for Jesus. This was not easy. This was hard fought. He didn't, his, his, his his nature as God didn't kind of bleed over into his human nature, and he's like, oh, I'm so weak. Oh, thank you, uh, divine nature, helping my human nature. Now I'm ready. No, he'd have an angel come and strengthen him. This, this is just an aside. I thought of this. There are times when you need someone to come alongside you, don't you? And you have a Savior who knows when you're like, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at my wit's end. I can't go on anymore. Jesus knows what that's like. He had an angel strengthen him. He can come alongside you and strengthen you because he knows exactly how you feel when you're so weak, so exhausted, so much suffering, so much agony. You just feel like you cannot go on anymore. That's why Paul prayed uh, and told Timothy, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me because he's there holding you up. This was not easy for Jesus His obedience was anything but easy, anything but automatic. It was difficult, hard fought. He needed the Holy Spirit, and he needed the help of an angel from heaven. And what prepared Jesus for this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it not all those lighter demands of his Father in the fires of those lighter sufferings? I mean, compared to Gethsemane, dealing with your siblings growing up was light, I mean, at the moment, it probably felt very heavy and real. But that was preparing Jesus for this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. All the light sufferings just began getting bigger and bigger and greater and greater, leading to this moment. Now, I want you to think about how much God the Father loved his son that he allowed him to suffer. Let me say that again. Think about how much God the Father loved his son that he allowed him to to suffer, that he didn't just give him an easy life. If Jesus had an easy life and just coasted through in his human nature, and then he was thrust into the moments before and during the crucifixion, he would not have been ready in his human nature. It would have been too overwhelming. It was already almost too much for Jesus after 33 years of being readied and perfected for that moment. Everything he went through, and in that moment, he needs an angel to strengthen him. What if it all had just been thrust upon him without the preparation? What if he just went 33 years of just like, you know, I just got to be patient, you know? And then that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane and then at Calvary. So see here the great love of God in allowing his son to suffer greatly throughout his life so that he could accomplish redemption for us. What love! Think about how much God loved his son that he allowed him to suffer before the cross. Jesus did not have an easy life at all. Please don't picture him as having this easy life as the son of God. Like, you just kind of chill all the time. You know, yeah, occasionally I stub my toe because I'm a human. And, you know, 
Sometimes I wake up with a crick in my neck, but I mean, that's really it. No, he had a hard life. How unloving it would have been if God the Father did not prepare his son for the cross. How unloving if God the Father told 12-year-old Jesus that he would go to the cross after he left the temple that day. Jesus wasn't ready then. So God takes him through trial after trial after trial after trial so that he would be ready in his human nature to endure the cross. And even then, he needed an angel from heaven to give him strength. And all of these trials and sufferings were proof of God the Father's love for his son. And then we see here what love God has for us. Because God allowed Jesus to suffer horribly throughout his life and then ultimately on the cross. What kind of high priest is Jesus for people like us? He's a merciful one. We'll see that in a few weeks after our Christmas series. This is why it was fitting for Jesus to suffer. So that when we suffer pain and agony and hardship and heartbreak, all the things that we experience in this life, when we suffer, we go to him as our great high priest. He's merciful because he's been there and done that. And that's why it was fitting for him to suffer. So that he could experience what we experience and suffer as we suffer so that he can be an understanding and compassionate and empathetic and sympathetic and merciful, caring, loving high priest. Jesus knows what it is like to suffer immensely. So you can go to him today. You just pour your heart out to him. Just tell him what's weighing on your heart. Just talk to him. Just tell him. Picture Jesus crying out to God with loud cries and tears. Picture him having very loud, quiet times. Picture him crying. Picture him with snot running out of his nose. Picture him with bloodshot eyes. Picture him using a whole box of Kleenex. Picture him with bloodshot eyes, red nose, raw from blowing it all the time. And then remember that he poured his heart out to God so he could pour his blood out for you to forgive you of all of your sins. That sin that just nags at you and and comes around occasionally, the thing that you've done that you're ashamed of and embarrassed about. He comes, he came to shed his blood to wash that away so that it's gone. He poured out his blood so that he could give you his righteousness, so he could give you his perfection, so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And it would really be like this. If it would be like, okay, Let's just say God came in here, God the Father, and he said, hey, Jesus, and you came around the corner and God saw you, he would say, there you are. That's how united to to Christ you are. That if God the Father called out for Jesus, son, come here, Jesus, come here. And then you turned the corner and walked in the room, he would say, there you are, because there's no difference. You are united to him, so when God the Father looks at you, he sees his own son, Jesus, and he is pleased because Jesus has given you his righteousness. He has imputed that to you, credited that to you, and it is reality. It's who you are. You are pure, you are blameless, you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are clean in God's eyes right now. I don't care what you did yesterday, I don't care what you're going to do today, I don't care what you're going to do tomorrow. This is reality. It's why he came shed his blood to give you his righteousness, his perfection. 
Let's close with a quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, As we come to Christ then empty-handed, claiming no merit of our own, but clinging by faith to his blood and righteousness, we are justified. We pass immediately from a state of condemnation and spiritual death to a state of pardon, acceptance, and the sure hope of eternal life. Our sins are blotted out and we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In our standing before God, get this, in our standing before God, we will never be more righteous, even in heaven, than we were the day we trusted Christ or we are now. Obviously, in our daily experience, we fall short of the perfect righteousness God requires. But because he has imputed to us the perfect righteousness of his son, he now sees us as being just as righteous as Christ himself. You are as righteous as you'll ever be right now. The moment you believed and trusted in Christ, you were 100% clean, 100% righteous, 100% perfect, 100% justified in God's eyes. You'll never, when you stand before him on that day and he says, enter into the joy of your master, you will not be more justified on that day or more righteous on that day. The moment you place your faith in Christ, justified, righteous, forgiven, clean, forever. Doesn't matter how good you are after that, doesn't matter how bad you are after that. You can't add anything to his righteousness and you can't take anything away. This is why the word gospel means good news because we give Jesus many reasons why that righteousness could fade away, right? But it doesn't. We're secure. We're in him. In other words, you could say this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what Christmas is all about. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is not built on on how good I've been. My hope is not built on January 1st, I started a Bible reading and I got a few more weeks, I'm gonna make it all the way through and I never miss a day. My hope is not built on that. My hope is not built on how much I give, how much I serve, how good I think I am. My hope is only built on his blood, which was shed to wash away even my self-righteousness. My hope is built on his blood and his righteousness, and that is what Christmas is all about. This is our hope, Grace, the perfect life of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus and his blood. Where foul sinners are declared righteous, foul sinners are washed clean. Jesus didn't tithe his blood for you. He gave it all for you. His whole life of obedience, he is now credited to you. Get that in your bloodstream today. See how your life has changed. That's really the red of Christmas, isn't it? When, when you see red all over the place during Christmas, I mean, look at all this red. When you see red everywhere during Christmas, think to yourself, the blood of Jesus has washed me clean. When you go into the stores and it's just red everywhere, let it remind you, oh yeah, I'm clean. I'm forgiven. Yes. I went back into my office this morning, uh, right before I came out here, and I was just like, yes, I'm free. And I was like, yes. And I thought, ooh, did anybody hear me? I don't care. Let it hit you. When you think about it, the red, I am clean. I am forgiven. I am pure. I am perfect in God's eyes. I 
don't have to do anything to earn that. I just have to open the empty hands of faith and say, I believe it. I receive. Help my own belief. And you have those moments where it's very subjective and you feel it. And you might want to let out a cry, a cry of like, yes, Lord, it's true. Yes, it's true. I'm feeling it in this moment and it's true. And it's true when I don't feel it. That's the gospel. So when you see red everywhere this Christmas, not getting angry seeing red, but when you see red everywhere, let it remind you that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed you clean. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to see you enduring the agony of the cross with the ecstasy of heaven in view, the joy that you would have returning to your Father with a bride purchased by your blood, with your enemy routed, Satan destroyed. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus, now reigning at your Father's right hand, not passively, but very actively and victoriously and patiently and persistently and joyfully working all things together in world history and even in our lives, Lord. You're working them for your glory and for your good. Help us to see that, Jesus. Indeed, Lord Jesus, until the day you return when we will see you as you really are and when we will be made completely as you really are, until that most glorious of all days, continue to open the eyes of our hearts, fix the gaze of our souls, and captivate the entirety of our beings with yourself. So very amen, we pray in your great and gracious name.